Tim Alper, the Team of Brass, from Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his usual Monday appearance, his weekly Monday appearance, is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. The real pleasure of having Dave Cameron as a, as a guest on the podcast is that uh, I, it is never necessary for me to check with Cameron beforehand uh, that my questions uh, will or will not be within his realm of expertise. Uh, as it were, uh, because mostly I could just really ask him anything. Uh, so for for example, reviewing this past week, which has been a slow one, uh, this allows us an opportunity perhaps to pursue some um, slightly more obscure lines of inquiry. And it's uh, it's very easy to do it uh, when you're dealing with someone like Dave Cameron. For example, uh, in, in the following uh, conversation with Cameron, we start off with the, the increasing expense of free agents and how that might lead uh, teams to find value in other places. That brings us to eventually uh, the ideal park dimensions that a club could have. Uh, if you're you know if you have a club and you say we want these park dimensions, what are the best ones? Somehow that brings us to Mike Cameron, and in particular the Mike Cameron from the year 2000 or so, right about the turn of the millennium. That Mike Cameron, how good he was, what he would be worth now. A couple minutes later, we're discussing a 38-year-old Ted Williams who recorded a 10-win season, again, as a 38-year-old, and what that would what would happen if, if, if a 38-year-old recorded a 10-win season now. The sort of differences in... Uh, public sentiment so far as that's concerned. Again, this is the sort of thing you can do when you have Dave Cameron as a guest who just uh, who knows most things about baseball, at least so, so far as baseball. Don't ask him about much else because he probably won't know. But if you want to ask him about baseball, then as this episode proves, you can just do whatever and he'll probably have an answer for you. That's it. It is Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It begins right now. Yeah, but they. Uh, but I talked with uh, uh, Dane Perry last week, and he is the sort of person who's lived in lives in Chicago, has lived there for a while, and um, he is uh, broken. He has been broken by the cold spell that has come through there. I guess like more broken than Dane more, Perry usually is. More broken <laughs> than usual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, just hollow. Okay. It was very yeah. difficult for him to get through. <laughs> Trying to imagine a broken Dane Perry, and I didn't know what a fixed Dane Perry looked yeah, like. Yeah, no, it's even more broken. Even okay. more more broken than you, than you were imagining before. Yeah. Um, yeah, he belongs in Guinness Book World Records for something. I don't know precisely what. but um, The most broken? Yeah, most broken, right. Listen, um, uh, in fact, uh, it has not been a particularly busy week. It seems as though in... Well, uh, you could correct me. I'm sure you would. The uh, after the Matt Garza signing, that maybe not a ton has happened. Right, uh, Emilio Bonifacio got DFA'd to make room for Bruce Chen, but yeah, not a yeah. lot has gone on. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a. I mean, it's not a terrible thing, I suppose. What What is the next thing? Uh, Chris Garza was signed almost immediately after Tanaka. We've We've talked yeah. about Garza now. You wrote about Garza shortly after last week's pod uh, podcast. Uh, you looked at. Um, him versus uh, Ricky Nolasco, and uh, re- with regard to him, you said on the podcast that he's probably a good pitcher, and maybe the reason that he was signed and signed so quickly after Tanaka was that was a uh, 
Uh, well, well, it was mostly the pitchers who were in on Garza were probably not in on Tanaka. It wasn't the similar group. Yeah, the teams. There was not a big overlap between right, the teams. Right, there, okay. yeah. Teams, right, teams. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Garza was probably a more straightforward signing because there was no uh, draft pick compensation attached to him. Right. I mean, it's still a straightforward signing for the team or for the player. The team just has to figure out how much they value their own draft pick and how much they want to alter their own offer based on the fact that they're losing a value. I think, you know, like Toronto has been rumored to be a pretty likely destination for one of the free agent starters as they want to upgrade their rotation. I think Jimenez probably makes more sense than Santana for them, given the fly ball problems Santana has and, you know, the Toronto's ability to turn fly balls into home runs. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Jimenez end up there. And I think they're a team that, you know, probably would like to keep their draft pick, but at the same time is going to go through a valuation process and say, what is our pick actually worth? It's a second rounder. Both of their first rounders are protected. So, you know, they're giving up a pick, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the 50 range. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what their second round pick is, but it's going to be somewhere in there, 40, 50, some, something in that area. So, you know, certainly not as valuable as the 20th pick in the draft. And they just kind of have to figure out how much do we want to discount, uh, you know, our offer to Jimenez to make up for the fact that we're forfeiting this pick. Or do we even want to do that, and or would we rather just say, you know what, it's just a second-round pick and the pool money, uh, we're, we have a win-now chance. We already gave up you know, Travis Nerno and Noah Syndergaard to get R.A. Dickey last year. We took on Mark Burley's contract. Like, we, we're already kind of in. Uh, you know, let's not put, you know, the brakes on now when we're theoretically close to contention just because we're hoarding our second-round pick. Right, you don't want that to be the thing. But do what? So this actually dovetails nicely with a, a post you wrote last week. You, you were um, in some questions I had about it. You wrote a post called "The Rising Price and Length of Free Agent Contracts," and yep. as you yourself note in that piece, um, there's nothing more. There's, you're not do, trying to do much more with that post than to say this is true. It's, <laughs> the, the prices and the lengths of the agent, free agent contracts are going up. But I do have a question, which is. Um, and again, it, it sort of relates to this conversation uh, with regard to uh, Hubaldo Menez, uh, Toronto Blue Jays. As the prices and the links, uh, so the overall size of free agent contracts is, uh, increases, perhaps it continues to increase, uh, are, how are teams, um, and part of this might be reviewed, but how are teams sort of um, strategizing to get value uh, in, other, in other places? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's uh, it's a little tough, and I think Jeff Sullivan wrote a piece last week that was pretty interesting about this. Is where you know, we've seen the A's and Rays spend money on relief pitchers, generally not teams that would spend a lot of money on relief pitchers. And we talked about this on the podcast last week, uh, where you know maybe it seems like the new market inefficiency is you know heading for the bullpen. Uh, but I think Jeff's right that that's probably just two teams that were already pretty good. Uh, had already filled out their roster almost entirely, didn't have too many places to upgrade, had some money to spend, and said, well, you know, we have $10 million. <laughs> we have to give it to someone. We don't have any starters we want to replace. We don't have any position players we want to replace. I guess we're going to have a really good closer this year. Uh, or in, in the Rays' case, they're going to have, you know, Grant Belfour and Heath Bell. And, uh, you know, they might get one good closer out of the two of them. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, it's not so much the, the bullpen as a new market inefficiency as much as, um, you know, teams – that are already really stocked are just looking for places to spend their money. And, uh, you know, the bullpen happens to be one area you can do that on a short-term contract. So I think in terms of teams trying to save money, uh, you know, there's, there are always going to be teams looking for, you know, undervalued things. I think defense is probably still a little bit undervalued in the marketplace. Not as much as it once was, but 
uh, probably still relative to its value. You can buy defense cheaper than offense or, or starting pitching or certainly relief pitching. Um, but I think, you know, as, as every team looks for value, uh, that's becoming harder and harder to identify one very obvious thing. And, and so now maybe it's more subtle things that are, that are, you know, specific to each team instead of there being a league-wide market inefficiency on on-base percentage. Maybe now there's an, there's a market inefficiency for teams that play in big parks to have three center fielders or, uh, you know, for a team that plays in a, a park that's, you know, really good for right-handed pull hitters. Maybe that's their own market inefficiency and they should go get players that fit that mold. So it's, it would be something that's, uh, it would be a sort of a law. It, it's not one of these situations that's maybe applicable to every team. It's it's in fact maybe playing to the strengths and avoiding the weaknesses that sort of facilitated by your own your own club's situation. Yeah, I mean, I, this is all a hypothesis and something that I have like massive amounts of data to prove. But I think it's uh, something to think about in terms of if the league is all hiring from the same kind of pool of intelligent people and they all have analysts on staff who are advising their GM and assistant GM and saying, hey, look, you know, we run the numbers and we all like this guy. Uh, then obviously that guy's price is going to go up. And so, you know, you're not going to see too many more instances where, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago when, you know, on base percentage was next to free and, and the A's could just sign whoever they wanted to get on base 38% of the time. That's not going to happen anymore. Uh, so I think now you're probably looking for more subtle things. And I think, you know, health is probably a big, uh, uh, potential opportunity. If, if a team figures out how they can keep players healthy, maybe that's an area where they can have a huge advantage and take a, a big step forward and kind of have a new money ball revolution in injury prevention. But I don't think anyone's there yet. Uh, and so I think, you know, what we're seeing is probably incremental, uh, advantages rather than, you know, one obvious glaring weakness that one team is exploiting and everyone hasn't caught on to. And you mentioned uh, some. You mentioned just as a, purely as an example. I recognize that that a team with a large outfield or big park might um, be inclined to invest a little bit more heavily in uh, defensively capable outfielders. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, though, that uh, over in recent years, uh, well, of course, last year we, we saw a couple teams bring in their outfield fences. The Seattle did. Uh, San Diego did. Um, not last year, but in recent years, uh, the New York Mets have done so. The, the Detroit Tigers, I, I think, did not not within the last couple of years, but uh, certainly since um, um, their stadium, their new stadium was built. Uh, I'm curious. We've seen teams bring their fences in. Are there a any examples of? Well, is there is there any indication that this helps a team one way or another? Because it would seem as though it wouldn't, except maybe it keeps their hitters happy. Uh, and second question is, have, is there any instances of a team uh, moving their fences back? I don't think so, because I think most of the stadiums that have been built lately have been airing on the pitcher-friendly side. We haven't seen band boxes constructed really since the 90s. Uh, maybe the last uh, new ballpark that opened that was hitter-friendly was Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And even that isn't as hitter-friendly as it's made out to be sometimes. It's not, you know, Coors Field or even the ballpark in Texas, uh, which are both more altitude-related than, than dimension-related, but or in Texas's case, I guess, humidity-related. Um, I think, so, when we're seeing bigger stadiums open, it it would not make sense for any of these teams to be moving their fences uh, backwards. I do think there is a case to be made that having a ballpark that is at least symmetrical in how it plays, whether it's pitcher-friendly, hitter-friendly, whatever, that it treats hitters from the left and right side or pitchers from the left and right side the same is a bit of an advantage versus having an asymmetrical park, uh, which I think, 
can maybe skew you to prefer uh, one side of the plate uh, or the other. So say you have, you know, uh, like in Seattle, um, the, the park was very unfriendly to right-handed pull hitters and pretty friendly to left-handed pull hitters. So, you know, a guy like Raul Abanez could just, like, pull 325-foot chip shot home runs down the right field line. The ball carried pretty well to right field. No problem. Every right-handed hitter in Safeco Field was crushed because the ball didn't carry it all the left field. The fence in left center was like 380 feet. Uh, it was not a good park for right-handed pull hitters. So the incentive was for right-handed hitters to not sign there or for the Mariners to load up their lineup on left-handed hitters. But then all of a sudden you have a, a couple of problems. One, <laughs> there's fewer left-handed players than there are right-handed players. So now you're picking from a po- smaller pool of players uh, and you're incentivized to sign more of those guys. So you're probably going to have to pay more to build out your lineup than if you could balance them with lefties and righties and pick from a bigger pool of players. And secondly, you've now got an imbalanced lineup where maybe uh, on an individual player basis it makes sense to have a left-handed hitter. So now you have seven or eight of them in your lineup and the other team brings in a left-handed reliever or a left-handed starter and mows through you uh, because you don't have proper lineup balance. And so I think there are times when if you have an asymmetrical park, it can make sense to fix it just in, from a roster construction standpoint so you're not incentivized to build rosters that are easily exploited. Oh, that's so that's interesting. So but now are you uh, are you advocating for behalf of a uh, well because the problem is right that that there are a couple things to factor in is that sometimes uh, or we've seen that uh, organizations move away from symmetrical ballparks because the uh, architectural sort of integrity of the parks has become more important over the last 20, 25 years, right? Yeah, I mean, by symmetrical, I don't necessarily mean, like, round. Like, you know, I, and not every park should look like U.S. Cellular Field in Chicago, but I think, uh, you know, maybe getting away from the, the having a 320-foot line and what, down one line and 350 down the other, or, you know, uh, getting away from having a 30-foot wall in, in one side of the fence and a 10-foot wall in the other. I think these are the kinds of things that can cause some problems where the park plays dramatically different uh, for one side than the other. Uh, I mean, you know, potentially you could say, oh, well, it's an advantage because now you can line laid up on, you know, crappy, uh, you know, left-handed fly ball pitchers and the, the ball will never leave the yard and they'll look okay uh, and you don't have to pay much for them. Um, but then I think you fool yourself and you go on the road with your crappy fly ball left-handed pitchers and all their fly balls go over the fence and then you're not a very good road team. So I think there are disadvantages to constructing a roster to the play specifically for a park in a dramatic way. If you're, if most of your roster is oriented around taking advantage of your home park, you still play any one road games. Okay, let me ask you this question, because the Mariners were good once. Um, they were, yes. In 2001, they were fantastic. Yeah. Well, from like 98 to 2000. Three, they were pretty good. They were pretty good, right? Yeah. Uh, but that 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 one team at least won a lot of games. I'm sure they went over, you know, whatever their WAR projection or their Pythagorean projection com- combination of those. Uh, but they won a lot of games. Yeah, that's fact. How yeah. did, how were what is the thing that made them good then that uh, they've been able to sort of revisit in the meantime? Uh, well, they can hit. I think lately they have not. That's been like probably their most dramatic uh, failure is the inability to score runs. I think that the 2001 team uh, featured some really underrated hitters and guys like uh, Mike Cameron and John Olerud who weren't necessarily prototypical good offensive players. But you know, in Olerud's case, he got on base so much that the lack of power didn't really matter. And Cameron was a pretty good offensive center fielder, even if he struck out a lot and. Um, you know, then they had the magical Brett Boone chemical assistance program, which, uh, you know, turned him from a mediocre player into an MVP. Uh, they had each own his prime. Uh, you know, I think there were a lot of guys who were 
who were better than people thought, all having career years. Um, and, you know, I think they, they led the league in offense that year. They led the league in runs scored. They hit a bunch of doubles. They drew a bunch of walks. Those are things they have not done lately. <laughs> lately, they've not scored many runs at all. Uh, but they also had fantastic defenses. And so, you know, when you had Mike Cameron and Ichiro and Sam Javier playing side by side, there weren't balls falling in in the outfield. Last year, the Mariners had, you know, Michael Morse and, uh, you know, some various defenders of, of lesser quality running around in the outfield. Uh, so I think overall, it's just, you know, it's not so much that they haven't built teams that played as well in Safeco Field. They built teams that just weren't very good. All right, yeah. Um, you know, you know what's, uh, just looking back at that team now, uh, are, are you familiar with fangraphs.com? I don't know Heard if you yeah. yeah. Um, some of our writers, I, you know, Saris, uh, is always shocked by some of the things uh, that we feature. Uh, I did not, maybe it's just, I, maybe I was not paying attention to baseballs at the time, right? Because this is, uh, well, this is between 97 and 99. Before Mike Cameron came to the Mariners, yep. he was already really good. Yeah. Uh, he, and uh, it's quite a bit of this. It looks like was uh, defensive related, uh, but he was sporting on base percentages above 350 and and hitting for some power as a defensively above average center fielder. He he had a five win season in 1999 with uh, with the Reds before he came to Seattle. I think this is one of the fun, fun things to kind of look back and remember how things were viewed and and how they would be viewed now if we had the tools we had. Uh, or have today then. I remember like when that trade was completed, people in Seattle were furious because Griffey had, uh, essentially said he's only gonna go play for the Reds. He'd vetoed a trade to, to Atlanta that reportedly would have brought the Mariners Andrew Jones. Um, uh, he said, you know, he basically narrowed down their options to where they just had to take whatever Jim Bowden would offer the Mariners. Uh, and the, the package was considered to be terrible and everyone in Seattle was like, this is atrocious, you're trading away an inner circle Hall of Famer, uh, and you're getting nothing in return. When you look back at it, you're trading down, you're trading away basically, I think, one year left of a, uh, you know, aging player on the wrong side of his career, uh, at least on, headed towards his decline phase for uh, a young player under team control for four years who was almost as good the last year and three prospects. Like, this was not quite the Will Myers for James Shields trade of its time, but it was pretty close. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the popular sentiment is the Mariners got screwed. Yeah, I just I, I just remember that from uh, someone at the time who was just becoming acquainted with fantasy baseball, and I don't, I don't think I think I heard the name Mike Cameron for the first time because of that trade, and, and maybe it was also maybe the Reds weren't good at the time. Right. Uh, that might have been a possibility, and therefore, uh, you know, they they were not on the tips of everyone's tongue. But uh, but yeah, that was really strange. And of course, you wouldn't have known necessarily that Griffey was going to undergo, you know, multiple in- injury shortened seasons directly after that. No, but at the same time, you can look at it and say, you know, he's getting traded in in a contract dispute. He's going to require a really large market price contract extension. So there's not a ton of value here, especially for a player who's getting old and has had some injury problems. Like, this is, you know, kind of a high risk, not that dissimilar from if someone had traded for Robinson Cano a year ago. Like, what would you have given up? Would you have given up a five-win player and three prospects for one, the last year Robinson Cano's deal and the right to sign him to a $200 million contract? Probably not. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Now, have you, I'm curious, have you done it? And I, I should tell, tell the listeners that none of this, this is just Dave Cameron riffing, um, um, as it were. The, uh, have you, have you, have you sort of done this at all where you've gone back and looked at trades, you know, that maybe about which you had strong opinions as a 14 year old and, <laughs> uh, and then now just re, you know, reexamine them again with the sort of tools that are available to you. Uh, at, at this point, and and uh, ha- had your mind blown 
Yeah, so I think one of the ones I remember being very vehemently against was I think when the Marlins traded for or signed, I don't remember which one it was, Yvonne Rodriguez. Uh, because, you know, they were a team that wasn't a contender. I was a very big believer in, uh, the wind curve and really not trying to expend your resources until you were on the peak of winning and, you know, thinking there was very little, little marginal value in adding like the 81st win, uh, if you were already a mediocre team. Uh, you know, what was the point of overspending on a free agent? Just save your money until you're good and give that playing time to a young player. And then Yvonne Rodriguez was like a linchpin for the Marlins winning a World Series. Uh, but I remember, like, you know, looking back at it and saying, meh, he was still a pretty good player. A team with a bunch of young talent added a good player to help them make a run. That's not such a terrible idea. And so I think, uh, you know, that's one move that sticks out in my mind as one that I can look back and, I think, you know, even not transactions, but just players. Like, I remember in the mid-90s when I was first learning about sabermetrics and this kind of analysis, kind of one of, like, the poster whipping boys of the the movement was Tom Goodwin, who the Royals kept playing in center field, even though they had very low on-base percentages. Uh, and he was kind of, like, one of the examples of how the Royals didn't get it and how they were, you know, just giving away outs by hitting this guy lead off. And you look back at it, Tom Goodwin was, like, a league-average player because he was a pretty good defensive center fielder. He stole bases at a high clip. He didn't get on base, but he did everything else pretty well. Uh, and, you know, so basically for, you know, five or six years, when Tom Goodwin was getting destroyed and the Royals were getting destroyed for playing him, he was a perfectly fine Major League Baseball player. Right. And, uh, yeah, maybe the Royals weren't going anywhere either. So No, but, I mean, you know, I think if, they're, if you're going to find candidates to pick on and say, you know, the baseball teams don't understand this guy's value, uh, they could have done – they could have found a much worse player than Tom Goodwin. Right. Yeah, that's – yeah, that's uh, – right. I, I think that's, al- that's always a fun exercise. I know that uh, – uh, <clears throat> Uh, over the weekend, perhaps, uh, maybe last Friday, uh, Dane Perry tweeted out um, a, a note uh, or a link to Ted Williams' uh, fangraphs page and a note regarding his age 38 season, which is 1957. Yeah. yeah. That's a, a – so if, if if people haven't visited Ted Williams' player profile recently, um, obviously the raw stats are difficult, but he was a nine uh, – he was basically a 10-win player that season. That's at, not bad. That's at age at age thirty eight, with with fewer than five hundred fifty plate appearances. I think the only logical explanation is steroids. So right, so that's the thing. If that happened, um, you know, that's not to say, of course, yeah. that that uh, um, PEDs haven't been part of the game and um, you know haven't uh, altered the game in ways that you know we probably probably don't understand entirely. Yeah. However, if that if that happened now, Ted Williams would definitely be. It, that would be part of the conversation. It would be suspicious. Yeah. It would be considered suspicious. I actually, like, when I was watching the Super Bowl yesterday, I had this thought as they were talking about how awesome Peyton Manning was, and they're saying, you know, five-time MVP, at age 37, just broke the all-time single-season records for passing yards, they had touchdowns in a season. Isn't this guy incredible? And I'm like, if this was in baseball, he would be a juicer. Like, at age 37, he sets the all-time offensive marks uh, for passing in the history of the league. We had that happen 10 years ago, and, you know, Everyone was sure the guy was on on roids, and obviously Barry Bonds was, uh, or you know we're pretty sure he was using illegal things. Uh, but it's funny to me how the conversation never comes up in football. Not that I think Peyton Manning is using steroids, or how that would even help him. I don't know. I'm not a football expert by any uh, uh, means stretch of the imagination. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. but uh, you know I think it's interesting how the celebration of 
a great player at a great, uh, at a, at a late stage of his career doing great things in one sport can be seen as being a, a heroic achievement of, of great mental triumph and hard work. And then in baseball, it's seen as, you know, obviously cheating. Yeah, that's, uh, it's problematic. And it probably speaks both to how, on the one hand, how baseball, uh, has developed. And then, of course, steroids is not even really a thing that's mentioned in football, even though, right. You have guys who are 300 pounds running four four forties. Right. Yeah. Right. So even if that's crazy, even if everyone is not, that's crazy doing yeah. that thing. So right. it, at least it should be remarked upon. Anyway, uh, yeah. So so strange that. But Ted Williams was good. I guess is one of the other big answers to that to that right. question. Yeah. Also, uh, Pey- I was, Peyton Manning did have a surgery that I don't know if, if it would necessarily be. I don't know if that's uh, if you're allowed to have that surgery. In baseball, he went. He had his neck. He had his neck fused or something, or he had uh, an injection of the uh, what do you what do you call it there? Yeah, the what do you call it? Those are big PEDs. <laughs> no, wait, Peyton Manning neck surgery. This is this is this is podcast grilling audio right here. Yeah. This person googling for uh, unknown surgery names. Uh, Neck surgery, neck injury. He had a surgery where he had the things put into his neck. Why would you think a baseball player is not allowed to have their neck fused? Like they just have to be paralyzed? That they're like, sorry, you play baseball. No, what was the? uh, This was a controversial political. So he went to he went to Europe. He had the things put in there. This is terrible. This is so. This is the worst you've ever been. Oh God. All right. Well, people are definitely listening to this and being like, "How do you not know the answer to what he did?" But yeah, he had a, it was a, it's a surgery he had to go to Europe to get. He couldn't. He wasn't allowed to do it in the United States. Or something. I mean, Bartolo Colon went to Europe to have his like blood spun. Right? Wasn't that like one of the controversial things a few years ago? Really? Yeah. You don't remember this? His blood was spun around. They, it's like platelet PRPs, right? Isn't that a platelet-rich plasma or something? Like they take your blood out, they throw it into a machine, and they enhance it with oxygen. Or I'm, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor, so I don't know exactly what I'm talking about. But they do stuff, and then they put more platelet-rich blood back back into you. Uh, and you know, I think when I heard one of the talks given at the Saber Seminar in Boston last year, the doctor. Who was there said he thinks it's all just like total BS and it doesn't actually work. Uh, but it might make you feel good and it might make you convince that something's happening and maybe there's a placebo effect. Uh, but it's certainly a thing that baseball players are having done. Uh, there, are they, are they allowed to then? Yes. They Carl can? Crawford had this like multiple times when he was in Boston trying to help the hamstring. Uh, did, didn't work out well, so well for him. But Bartolo Colon I think became one of like the faces of this when he came back to have that good season with the Yankees a few years ago. Uh, after like flying to maybe it was Puerto Rico or Dominican or somewhere uh, to have a surgery that you can't have done in the U.S. And uh, wait, is this what the like the uh, cyclists were having, and they're not allowed to do this, or is it something different? No, I think they were doing blood doping, which is different and maybe more illegal. But they were doing a thing where they take their blood out of their body and they oxygenate it and they put it back in. Yeah, I don't exactly know how this is different. I'm sure there's like some vague moral reason that PRPs are okay and blood doping is not, but you know, it all seems very similar. I agree. Well, if anyone is listening and is so inclined, you could come to the post where this is 
And you could set us straight on any number of issues over the that have been discussed for the last really, minutes. Really, every, everything we've talked about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably everything we've talked about. Listen, before you're dismissed uh, from this edition of Vanguard Saudi, though, uh, let's uh, let's talk about the Nationals for a second because we did we released the projections for them today. We did. Yeah, They're very optimistic. You think they're optimistic? They look like a good club, except yeah. I mean, with the, basically the exception of Adam LaRoche, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying optimistic that I think like the Nationals like them as a team, not that they're you know uh, inflated and the Nationals are likely to underperform. Oh, right, yeah. I think I'm saying like it's it's a good projection for Nationals fans. Yeah, right. Oh, stem cells, by the way, are the words I was looking for. Stem cells. Stem cells. Okay. He had stem cells put in his neck. Stem cell treatment. That's all I'm seeing. Stem cell. Stem cell treatment. Okay, we should go back to the Nationals because we actually know what we're talking about there. <laughs> yeah, we do mostly. Um, okay, so one curious thing is the Ryan Zimmerman uh, question. Yeah. Uh, what? And and I sort of gesture towards this. Uh, obviously, Dan Zimborski is one person to talk about this too. But from your understanding, what could a projection system know and not know about Ryan Zimmerman? Well, it probably doesn't know that he doesn't know how to throw anymore. <laughs> so I think this is one of the things about, the interesting thing about Zimmerman is, uh, you know, he's, he should be at a point where he's getting better or at least holding still on his performance, not declining as rapidly as he has the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a question as to whether it's a physical issue where, you know, his shoulder has been injured and he hasn't been able to throw because of his shoulder, uh, or if it's a mental issue that has arisen after the shoulder surgery where he should be physically recovered and now he's just, uh, skittish and has Steve Sack syndrome or whatever you want to call the inability to throw the ball from third base to first base. Uh, and I don't think anyone actually knows the answer to this. The Nationals are going forward with Zimmerman as their third baseman again this year, in part because Adam LaRoche is already under contract and they can't get rid of him. Um, but I think, you know, th- their preference probably would have been to move him to first base if that was an option, if LaRoche wasn't blocking their path. And I don't think that it's certain that uh, Zimmerman's just going to remember how to throw the ball to first base again. And, um, you know, I think the question of his throwing, whether it's mental or physical, probably has uh, some amount of uh, importance for his offensive projection as well. If it's a physical issue and Zips doesn't know that he's still maybe not healthy, then you'd probably say, you know, a pessimistic projection would be in order. If it's a mental issue that only affects his throwing, then you might say, hey, you know, his offense could be in for a rebound. I think the problem is we just don't know. Yeah, right. It is a difficult situation. Now, I was uh, in preparation for that Zips piece. I was reading an Adam Kilgore uh, Washington Post piece uh, from sort of early mid December, uh, and there was a line in it that that surprised me because I, I hadn't been aware of it. Um, he writes, "The way Zimmerman finished last season convinced both the Nationals and himself that he has conquered the throwing issues that threatened to de- to derail him early in 2013." Uh, but the Nationals uh, see value in adding to Zimmerman's versatility. It, it's funny, and this is maybe the sort of thing that um, uh, having a national focus as opposed to a team-based one, uh, you know, might um, uh, might it, it might be sort of responsible for this. I guess I had I was for me, 2013 was a year of difficulty for Ryan Zimmerman, despite the fact that I mean his offensive game did not uh, suffer at all. But I guess I, I guess I hadn't been aware uh, that he had. Uh, conquered the throwing issues by the end of the season. Is this something that that uh, you're aware of? Yeah, so I think he improved. I think conquered is maybe strong. I think that's uh, probably a bit of an overstatement. If he conquered it, we'll probably see that in spring training where, you know, he for a month figures out how to stand flat-footed on a, you know, ground ball right at him, have, you know, five minutes to throw the runner out at first and doesn't airmail the ball down the right field line. That was always his problem is uh, the routine play hit right at him where he had plenty of time and just 
overthought it or got the yips or whatever, made a terrible throw, uh, diving plays, charging bunts, whatever, he would make fine throws on the run, uh, or when he was rushed, but it was, you know, the relatively routine play where he had plenty of time and he just threw it away. So I think, uh, you know, did he improve as the season went on? Probably. Did, would I say he conquered it? Not from what I saw. Yeah, right. And, and so the, the strange thing too, right, is he has, like, he, I, I, you know, the, again, the times that I saw, he had a strange, always, uh, like a strange hitch yeah. in his throwing where it seemed like, right. he, um, as you know, as you know, he was, the more and more he, he became aware of the time that was available to him, uh, maybe the more difficult it was for him to make that throw. Right. He also developed a habit of throwing the ball sidearm, which is not so great for accuracy. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a question of whether it was compensating for pain, uh, where maybe his shoulder still hurt some, and so he dropped his angle in order to reduce the pain on his arm, or whether it was something that was a reaction to the fact that he'd been throwing the ball away uh, for the past year and a half, and he was trying to fix it. And I think that's, again, coming back to the thing where we just don't really know why he was throwing sidearm. Uh, it would probably be good if he could get away from that, though. Now, if you had to uh, move it to the rotation there, they have four pitchers now with the inclusion of Doug Fister, four yep. pitchers projected to post about uh, four wins each. Right, and that, Strasburg's projected to do that in 150 innings. Right, and, uh, and even without looking at the numbers, I think it's uh, pretty clear that Ryan Strasburg's pretty good. Ryan Strasburg is Stephen's younger brother. I was still thinking about Ryan Zimmerman, sorry. Uh, Ryan Strasburg is also, yeah, it's his younger brother. That's a good point. Um, no, but, uh, they're good. Um, uh, is that the, is that the best rotation uh, in the league or, uh, is that still the Detroit, maybe the Los Angeles Dodgers, someone else? Yeah, I think the Dodgers have a pretty good case. Uh, you know, I think, uh, the Tigers are still in the mix, depending on what you think of Drew Smiley at the back end. You know, he won't be Doug Fister most likely, but he's, you know, probably going to be okay at least. So, uh, I think, you know, Tigers are in the mix, Dodgers are in the mix, Nationals are in the mix. Uh, you know, I think there's a few teams that have really good rotations. There's not one that's clearly better than the others anymore, like there was last year with the Tigers. Well, there seems to be the, the Nationals also seem to be in in a sort of nice position that they have four pitchers who are uh, obviously you know possess quality. Um, they certainly have a track record and don't you know there's no reason to believe that they're injured. And they also have this fifth spot and like they could kind of use the fifth spot the exact way is best to use is to just sort of try out uh, different candidates, for, right? You know, to to be part of the rotation because they have. Like four or five guys in uh, Ross Detweiler, Nate Carnes, Taylor Jordan, uh, Tanner, either Roark. Roark. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Who, I, I learned that one the hard way. He could also – why, were you beaten up for <laughs> Yeah, right. I said Taylor Roark and the, the mafia showed up and yeah. like, they will not mispronounce his name. The um, the um But you have like this like group of guys, all of whom uh, have some upside. Maybe Detweiler yeah. doesn't necessarily have quite the upside, but he has a better track record. So that seems to be, I mean, is that like an ideal situation to have four established pitchers and then just have one spot that you could totally use for experimental purposes? Uh, I mean, I think the ideal situation is maybe with the Dodgers, where you have five established pitchers and then you have some extra guys. I mean, I think that, you know, but not everyone does a $250 million payroll. I do think, like, in the Nationals, uh, depth, was an issue last year where they had to start Chris Young and, uh, you know, some other guys who, who weren't very good. Uh, so I think the fact that, you know, Jordan and Roark and, and Karn, some of these guys have progressed and have become legitimate rotation options, if, even only for 10 starts a year, uh, is a big boon to their, their chances and allows them to not have to, you know, go get a 
Paul Mahomes or Chris Capuano or someone like that to fill out the rotation. Uh, I don't know that I would say it's ideal, though, to have a rotating wheel of guys who are all probably going to be average at best. I think ideally what you'd like to have is maybe a high upside young guy and then some kind of uh, more reliable workhorse type who could step in if the young guy failed. Um, another curious thing happens with the Nationals in their bullpen, which is uh, they have Tyler Clippert. Yeah. And Tyler Clippert is probably the best relief pitcher on the team. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's probably true. And then you have Drew Storen and Rafael Soriano, um, who are the pitchers who <laughs> have been the closer and uh, um, are going to be the closer, respectively. Right. Uh, that's a curious situation, and I'm wondering if it's instructive at all. Um, in the sense that Tyler Clippard's probably the best, but he's the one who hasn't really been given the shot. Yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I think it's not that unusual to have a setup guy that's better than your closer, especially, I think what we see with a lot of closers, and Raphael Soriano fits into this mix, is, uh, some of them have pretty large platoon issues. They become closers because they're fastball slider guys, and, you know, they're probably right-handed fastball slider guys, so they have some issues with left-handers, and this is basically Raphael Soriano's deal, is he's got some issues with left-handers, so whether he's facing three right-handers, it's an almost guaranteed save, and if he's facing three left-handers, it's close your eyes and hope. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think, it's not that unusual for these kinds of guys to make it into the closer role. And I think, uh, you know, for teams that have a closer like this who has some platoon issues, uh, it's not that unusual for them to have a reliever who doesn't have those same platoon issues and can be used in longer stints and maybe pitches two innings at a time and is overall more valuable, uh, but doesn't get the saves uh, just because of the kind of the way that closers are defined as being hard throwers who get a lot of strikeouts. Yeah. Well, that would, that must be good for a team, though, because then you come to arbitration or you're re-signing a pitcher like that, then you're, I assume you're paying them less money because, uh, you don't have to deal with, uh, the safe stat. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some argument to be made, and I've seen people advance the argument that one of the reasons the A's traded for Jim Johnson is so they could deflate Ryan Cook's prices, is that now they're not gonna have to pay Ryan Cook closer prices in arbitration, maybe they can keep him a little longer. I don't know that that's entirely the A's motivation, but I do think there's some benefit to having a good, young, dominating reliever not rack up a ton of saves like, you know, Craig Kimbrell or Oldest Chapman or one of these guys did who are going to become very expensive and, and going to be difficult to keep. If you can, you know, David Robertson them, like the David Robertson them. Uh, David Robertson? Like the, David Robertson there, them. Yeah, right. However, however you want to use David Robertson as a verb, yeah. <laughs> you can do what the Yankees did where he's never become the closer, and so even though he's very good, he's still not making a ton of money in his final year in arbitration. All right. Okay. Uh, I think this is do. I, is there anything else we should we should bring up about um we should bring yeah. up about the national? Nah, I, I think we're good. Okay, all right. You feel you feel good. You feel complete. I feel yeah. You have completed me. <laughs> Let's say goodbye then. That yeah. is. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dave Cameron. Thank you, Carson Sestouli. Yeah. All right. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 